Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a great episode for you. We're going to do a roundtable episode on return to activity after shoulder surgery. We invited three experts, each of whom is going to give their differing perspectives. First, we have Dr. Matt Preventure from the Stedden Philippon Institute at Vail, Colorado, who joined there after his time um, in the Navy and at Harvard. Dr. Preventure, welcome to the podcast. Pete and Rachel, thank you so much for the invitation. Next, we have JT Tokish from the Mayo in uh, Phoenix, who joined there after his time in the Air Force. Uh, Dr. Tokish, welcome so much uh, to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to both of you. It's great to be here. And then uh, finally, we have Dr. Paul Sethi uh, from the Orthopedic and Neurosurgery Specialists uh, Practice in Greenwich, Connecticut. Dr. Sethi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. All right. Well, this is quite a group. For our listeners out there, these are some of the countries, if not the world's leading experts on all things shoulder. So let's get right into it. We're going to start with one of the hottest topics in sports medicine and shoulder surgery, and that's labral repair, whether it be anterior, posterior, multidirectional. Matt, can you start here? Tell us about your protocol for return to play after arthroscopic stabilization. Does that change if you add a remplissage? Does it change if you go open? Tell us what your protocol is here. Yeah, Rachel, thanks. You know, many of us are, I think, in a dilemma in the in the shoulder world when it comes to return to play. Although we've made significant strides, we're nowhere close to what our colleagues that treat ACL injuries and return to play with ACL are in terms of providing some really good metrics to get back to play. And that's because you're just really looking at a lower versus upper extremity functional outcome screen, and we've been able to do much better on our lower extremity. That being said, I do think we are getting better. We're finding some better ways to test strength, to test all of the muscles that go around the shoulder and the scapular uh, repositioning and all, all the important factors that go back to having a rarely low chance of re-injury and a really low chance of redislocation. And that's what we want for our patient at the end of the day. Although we're getting better, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, some people use a time-based, and that's been, I think, a reasonable way to do things. But the reality is we're getting better. We're doing more instrumented type of testing. And I think this is one of the most exciting and innovative areas in the world of shoulder surgery is to get our patients back sooner and with better predictability. Totally agree. And Paul, what do you think? Do you think that there, for your practice and your patients, is there a minimum time, you know, everything Matt was saying in terms of different testing techniques and looking more at individual, you know, muscles and stability and whatnot um, is going to be helpful, but is there a minimum number of months that you're telling your patients when they come into the office and they say, well, doc, okay, fine, do the surgery, but when can I get back on the field? When can I get back on the court? What are you telling them? So Rachel, I don't think it's an evidence-based statement, but for me empirically over the last 15 years, I think the earliest I've let someone back is about four months after their surgery. Um, and it's going to be position. It's going to be sports. It's going to be athlete specific, just like Matt suggested. We got to look at the scapula and the scapular mechanics. That's our best chance to have something similar to what JT and Tim Hewitt, the mayor, are looking at in the ACL. So, so four months is my, is my early goal. Six months is probably more realistic. And I don't really know that it often goes beyond that. 
All right. And then JT, how about you? Is it, you know, in your hands, can you get them back with a phenomenal repair at three months? Are you waiting until six months or, you know, what's, what's the JT protocol for return? Yeah. So for me, this is a, a bit of a team sport, right? So I, I actually think it's a lot more to do with who the athlete is, where they are in their season, where they are in his career or her career. If you've got a, a, a senior who's uh, finishing out a season, I think that's a different animal than a a freshman or a young person at the beginning of their season. Um, so, you know, if you have time, I take it, right? So if this dislocation in a football player happens in February, then it's a six month return because that's how much time I got. But if they happens in April, we're going to push it a little bit harder. And I think the thing that I've learned over the years is, especially in the arthroscopic situation, just because you're rehabbing the shoulder, um, in some ways, I think it's very, very safe to both immobilize or protect, if you will, and mobilize at the same time. I think we neglect the muscle strengthening uh, as, a, as a rule. And so because we're so worried about damaging our repair, we, we neglect the fact that those, there's nothing wrong with those muscles. We ought to get those going day one and we can protect and mobilize at the same time. Great. Those are super important tips for our listeners. One of the things that I think is interesting right now is that there's debate between the labor repair and the ladder J. So I think it'd be nice to provide some contrast. So JT, if you're doing a ladder J, for you, is that a quicker return to play or is the time course the same as after a labor repair? Yeah, so the, the good news about the ladder J is that it's bone to bone healing. And uh, and every basic science study that I know of knows, you know, looks at bone to bone healing and gets it there. The beautiful thing about bone-to-bone -bone healing in the latter J is we can track it, right? So uh, in general, the short answer to your question is it is a faster return to sport uh, with a latter J if I do a subscap split with it, and that's all we do. And, and the reason is, is that I can get a CT scan early and see, and if I've got bridging bone and that thing is healed, then there's nothing stopping me from going back. Again, I pay attention to the envelope that that latter J is in. Is that athlete, is he strong? Does he have uh, protective sensation? But if, all, if he passes all of those things and we've been working on them since day one and the bone is healed, let him go. So JT, it's Paul. Exactly. I, I agree with everything you said, but my question is, is what is the real utility of a CT scan after ladder J? Because what if you get to four or five or six months and there's only a fibrous union? You know, are you going to not let him return back or her return back to play? Uh, with with that finding, uh, I, I just I struggle with the radiation exposure. Yeah, it's a good point. So I think that, again, if I've got a patient who is uh, who has time, so let's say it's uh, that kid in February who's trying to get back by August ball, but then they don't get that early CT because we have no reason for it, and I let that thing play out. We follow them with X-ray, and I oft, I sometimes don't get a mandatory CT on those folks for the reasons that you mentioned about radiation. But in the setting where you have somebody who it's really important that they get back early, and what does early mean? Well, maybe you could go as early as eight weeks to 10 weeks. Uh, that's the person that I might fire and, and draw the, the pistol on the early CT to see if that thing is healed. Standard, what's the standard time point for you for the CT? Is it eight to 10 weeks or is 12 weeks more standard or is that four to five month mark that, um... Paul mentioned a more standard time point, like if, if it's just a run-of-the-mill patient. Are you asking me? Just JT. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. So if in all things considered, if everything's going well with that patient and their x-rays look pretty good at six weeks, then uh, if I if 
if I have any doubt at all, then I'll CT scan them at around three months. And at three months, they should be good. Now to Paul's point, what if you get a little fibrous uh, issue at that three month point? That would make me a bit nervous. We're expecting osteolysis anyway. It's very humbling, by the way, to get CT scans on all of your latter J's as you go forward. Uh, but in those situations, if I've got bridging bone and can be confident that that is healed, then I think that uh, that makes me feel much better about returning them to sport. What about you, Paul? Are you are you are you CTing all the latter J's? What what's your what is your return to play protocol after latter J? So, you know, as JT suggested, certainly going to, I'm going to trend towards earlier. And I think that at the three month mark is if I have a satisfactory x-ray uh, and their shoulder mechanics are doing well, I'm okay with it. I totally agree that when an athlete's pressing you to get back earlier, a CT scan is going to make you sleep easier and make the athlete feel better. Um, but I do not routinely CT them unless they're pressing me or if there's something in the season or there's something about the athlete specifically that they need to be back sooner. Uh, it's the end of their career or it's, where it's, you know, a different part of their recruiting time. What about you, Matt? Yeah, honestly, the, the CT scan after the latter J has been, as JT pointed out, one of the most humbling, but also one of the best learning experiences as a surgeon, but also as the entire musculoskeletal team. Everyone, everyone wants to know how, how's it doing? Are they ready? Are they ready to go back? And whether it's a workers' compensation patient that wants to get back to work or you know a high-end athlete, the CT scan has really been a great tool for me to improve our craft, improve our game, to learn a lot. That 57% of the bone goes away on average if you look at Giovanni Di Giacomo's work or some others, and then you don't always get 100% healing. But what you do get is a pretty predictable response. In addition, it's also, I think, helped us do the procedure better, to do it more reliably, to learn how how patients uh, rehab after, and then to really just feel good about letting them go back to play. So in general, I'll get one between three to four months, depending on what their timeline is. And it's, you know, and after that, if they're doing okay, and the exam looked good, and the strength looks good, the scapula looks really good, then they're they're allowed to return to play. Let's go down the line with our panelists real quick. What's the earliest you've ever let an athlete go back to play after Ladder J in months? Matt, what would you say? Earliest ever? Earliest ever. Uh, two months. Two months, JT? Yeah, I've never had. I've never been pushed to do that. I, I two months would would I do it, but it would make me nervous. The earliest I've ever had uh, anybody go back that I needed was uh, was just under three. So I think it was eleven weeks, and that was because that's when they needed to go back. And Paul, how about you? I'm going to finish in last place and tell you three months is the earliest I've been <laughs> I've been comfortable. All right. Well, I'm still close to four months, but maybe it's just um, maybe it's just my nerves and whatnot. So so I'll take Rachel, the last. It's, it, it's great. It's great hair. Matt, JT have much more than you and I both. <laughs> that is the All truth. Right. You know, uh, there there is something to be said about that. You know, the more the, the more you do this, the more your patients surprise you both ways. But they you know, many times the patients can just regulate it and need, and need to go. This this two month patient was someone that wanted to get back for playoffs. and. CT, CT look great. And there's good evidence even on, you know, x-rays or good axillary x-rays, West Point, or even CTs at six weeks that this 
this bone is reasonably well incorporated if you, if you get a good healing response. And you know it's going to stay there. You know it's going to be a good response. And it's the interface healing. Again, we talk about all this lysis after ladder's A, but it's the interface healing. It's between the native glenoid and the coracoid transfer that you're worried about. We get lysis all around the outside of the graft. That's all okay. We don't want a lot of proud screws or any of these other things, but it's the interface healing that we really need to be talking about. Totally. I think it's just great for our listeners to hear from experts who have, you know, pretty much seen everything good, bad, and ugly. Say, you know, where where is the line? Where do we draw the line in terms of letting them come back and see the variability? And we obviously have to, you know, customize each of our recoveries to the individual patient and their needs. Let's, hey, Ray, let's this is JT. I might just add to that. I, I don't, I would be very careful about if I miscommunicated about keeping this as a badge of honor. I would no way want, I'm sure Matt would say the same to us to communicate, hey, the sooner you get them back, the better, or, you know, I'm really good because I can get them back. That's not the case. And, and those patients that push us, you can hear Matt was talking about a specific athlete with a specific need, but the vast majority of patients, I am not pushing them to get back early. I want them to take every bit of time on that rehab if possible. Yeah, I think, you know, what you said in the beginning when we were talking about labor repair, if you have six months, use it, you know, to get that athlete back to to full strength and get back to their season. So totally, I and I think our listeners will understand um, that we're not trying to rush patients back as soon as possible. It's just all, you know, customized to that individual patient. Um, let's go to a, kind of a more difficult but also interesting topic with regard to rotator cuff repair. This gets complicated because the tears differ in size, and we know there are so many other factors at play with respect to biology, mechanics, patient demographics, etc. This is really an area where surgical technique and implant innovations have helped us establish super strong constructs at time equals zero, but even with that, the cuffs don't always heal as predictably as we'd like. So Matt, let's start with you. When do you let your patients resume activities such as tennis, golf, and swimming, things like that after rotator cuff repair? Does the size of the tear play into it? And let's exclude things like superior capsular reconstruction at this point. Let's just talk about, you know, a standard small, medium, or large rotator cuff repair. You know, Rachel, this is a, this is a great topic in the world of return to play. Maybe even, you know, more important than shoulder instability because of just the magnitude of the problem, the number of patients we're treating, and then just the diverse activities that they want to go back to. You may have a younger patient that's very demanding and wants to rock climb and hang upside down on rocks with one arm, you know, to someone that has a, you know, lower end, lower end golf game like uh, Tokish and myself. So, you know, we, we just want to be out there trying to customize this uh, to the patient, their tear size, the amount of repair, the tenuousness of the repair or the robustness of the repair. And I, I would just say, you know, anecdotally, and the more experience I get with this is really trying to customize it to all of those factors and then as well as what they're going back to. If you look at some good randomized data and we use our best evidence out there and you look at uh, some of the Norwegian registry work or work by Lundgren and others. We have randomized sling and, and no sling for a week or two versus up to four to six weeks. Really no difference if you just have a super tomatoes tear and you end up to a double row repair. And so as long as you're able to get that healing and get it predictably, we, we can be, at least in my opinion, a little bit more aggressive on a lot, not all of them, but a lot of the rotator cuff repairs and really customize what you get back to. And certainly the easier events and the easier sports 
we try to get people back to uh, early because they don't want to be staring down six months out of life to do their rotator cuff. So we're really trying to customize this and, you know, with our new constructs and being diligent about exactly what they have, I, I think we can really get this down to a matter of weeks or just to several months to get back to some activities and the heavier things by four, maybe five months. And Paul, what about you? How long are you keeping most of your rotator cuff repairs in a sling? And when are you letting them get back to things like tennis, golf, and even running? You know, running is a common question we get. And that places stress upon the shoulder more than I think the average patient understands. So what's your protocol here? So I think, Rachel, it really it depends on what the protoplasm and what the type of tear I'm dealing with is, right? So as we were talking about athletes in return to sport, I think as we go to rotator cuff, while we certainly know and we've all treated young athletes, you know, 18-year-olds with rotator cuff tears, the majority of these patients are going to be in a different demographic. So they're, they're sort of pushed to get to back to elite or professional level sports is different. We can all remember Chad Pennington, one of the Jets' last great hopes. He had rotator cuff repair by an outstanding surgeon, went back at four months, which surprised everybody. Uh, and at five and a half months, he was having his revision surgery uh, before he could get back to the NFL. Comparatively, a guy like Pedro Martinez, a pitcher in JT, you could talk about this. He didn't get back on the mound for 18 months and never really returned. And that may just be an endemic of that, of that job of throwing. So to me, honestly... I think four months is the very, very earliest if I had unbelievable protoplasm, a great repair and great tissue, and the person has their full painless range of motion. Uh, I think running, you can go as early as 10 weeks, you know, but if it's a big tear, I may slow it down. The stakes are high. And when rotator cuff goes wrong, it's not like you can go over to an open capsule shift or ladder J and have a really satisfactory secondary return. That when we're doing revision rotator cuff surgery, we've got to start to think about much other challenging, complicated strategies that take even longer to heal. So I, it's a different demographic and I back up a little bit. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think this is one of those areas where we can burn bridges with that primary procedure if that gets compromised too early in the recovery. JT, how about you? You know, with some of your higher level athletes, some of the hockey athletes, or even some of the weekend warriors, how long are you keeping them in a sling? And um, when are you letting them go back to some of those recreational activities, let alone high level athletics? Question. So rotator cuff, full thickness rotator cuff tears in the high level athlete are miserable, right? I mean, Chris Mazaway and Jimmy Andrews published that study and Jimmy Andrews hands a full thickness rotator cuff tear got back to pitching ready 8% of the time, 8%. And that's Jimmy Andrews. So I, I actually think that that this is one that should have our full respect and, and, and a little bit of fear with this. These, these are slow. I am far more on the Pedro side than I am on the Chad side. There is no role in my hands for rushing a rotator cuff repair back. And the reason is this. Well, one is, is the vast majority of these don't fail. They fail because of biology. And so we're taking terrible biology and sticking it back and then maybe not giving it the time that it needs. It's already going to be a slower thing to heal. So that's the first thing. What I'm excited about is, is we got to keep that shoulder protected. And so while it's not available in the U.S., there are surgeons in Europe now that are uh, supplementing their repairs with balloons which I think is a really uh, intriguing idea. And I, I think it's going to probably play out or even patches, subacromial patches, where if I feel like I want to hold that head down and protect it during the healing rate, take some of the stress off it, we'll add a little more patch on the, on the subacromial area to kind of help hold everything in place. For me, that is, uh, we're talking about a month return that somebody's doing stuff. I might let them run a little bit earlier than that. Running is amazingly jarring in these people. 
people. And it's not just the, the mechanical failure, but also the scapular mechanics and things that go into current or persistent pain after that rotator cuff tear that has these concerns. JT, I think that was an excellent answer. And I want to point out that you, you mentioned Chris Mazaway and your namesake, Tokish, the Cornell Football Pride. So I, I appreciate you pointing out the strong athletes there. Hey, God bless you for remembering the Big Red, man. That was a great football team back then. <laughs> One quick question for you guys. Everyone, you know, a, a lot of people are talking about imaging their latergés. Is anyone imaging their cuff to make that decision? Is anyone using ultrasound or MRI, you know, at three months, four and a half months, six months to make decisions about return to work, for instance, for a comp case or return to golf for someone who's maybe super on the aggressive side on that? Not unless you want to retear on your MRI and have to deal with a huge fallout. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly there's something to be said about stones overturned, but anyone look on an, on, on ultrasound? Interesting. Yeah. Not Yeah, it's just it, it's one of those things. I mean, certainly the MRI and the justification and the cost. I don't think it's truly there unless you have issues. I mean, ultrasound becomes the interesting question in my mind. I, I certainly do it if, you know, patients have questions or, you know, there might be some tweak and you're like, listen, there's no way that this feels good. But cuffs can surprise you. And Pete, just like you said, <laughs> there's many tears that do very well. And the evidence supports it um, after repair, but they've retorn, but they have... 100 SANE score. They have a 98 on their ASES and it's, it's retorn. So we have to be a little bit, we have to be a little bit careful about that. Um, so I use it judiciously, uh, but not routinely. Yeah, I think that's a, a super interesting point about cuff that so differs from our thoughts about instability that there, there may be tears that don't heal where the patients end up with a good clinical outcome. Um, certainly there's plenty of literature to suggest that overall strength is better if the tendon heals, but, um, but that's not true of everyone. Let's, let's move on to one, you know, the, the next level up in terms of invasiveness to talk about shoulder arthroplasty. So, um, certainly we have, I'm, I'm sure plenty of people in, in all of you guys practices that are trying to maybe not return to professional football, but are trying to get back to all sorts of activities after a shoulder replacement. Paul, tell us a little bit about your protocol here does anatomic differ from reverse when would you let these people get back into some higher level activities if they were desiring that so so i guess it does in the sense that i'm not as anxious about the subscapularis healing in in a, a reverse versus a primary uh, what i've changed and i look at john levy's work and return to sport and i think josh johns has, has published on this too look I, I actually don't rush them into pt in the beginning i'm going to give them three four weeks to settle down and let that subscapularis sort of glue into place then once they restore themselves back to a comfortable uh, range of motion and have reasonable cuff strength and can resist me in scaption and can pass my, my clinical subscap tests, then I'll let them go back. But really, again, that's going to be somewhere closer to five or six months. I don't, I don't want to rush them at four months just because the stakes, at least in a primary, are going to be much greater. And if I lose their subscap, I've lost this operation, at, at least in, in some. Um, for a reverse, I'm going to let them back to golf probably three and a half months. Uh, walking and, and you know these people aren't as often going running uh and really getting after it just the same way and those are people i slow down even more because they're going to go back to the gym and weightlift and really stress the implant that i give so once again maybe i'm the i'm the cautious one out of, out of all of them here what about you jt tell us about your strategy for arthroplasty and return to activity oh here's the part where you may want your listeners to settle it down or, or shut it shut me off for a minute because 
I'm actually out way on a limb here uh, compared to most of my colleagues. We, uh, when I uh, started doing a high volume of shoulder arthroplasty, I noticed that for reverses, at least, I couldn't get the subscap repaired very well. And I thought, man, this is terrible. So we actually did the study and published it a couple of years ago, comparing uh, shoulders that had subscap repair and reverses and those that didn't and found no difference. Well, that left me with a very uncomfortable question, which is if I'm if I get no difference with repairing the subscap, why am I repairing the subscap? So I stopped repairing it. And then I had a problem because if I if I'm not protecting the subscap, what am I protecting? So therefore, every reverse for me, I tell them they can do whatever they want the next day. I have no restriction on this. Now, the French, if they were on here, would be throwing stuff in the podcast, and I, I respect that. But they use a medialized construct, and that's other, uh, beyond the scope of this discussion. But the problem, the problem that it's created for me is, is my rehabs are drastically different because for the anatomic, I have to prepare the sub, repair the subscap, and I have to protect it. For the reverse, I literally tell them they can do whatever they want the next day. Now, they don't play golf, although I did have a guy at five days do it. Um, but, mo but most of the patients are still pretty sore and everything for a couple of weeks, but it has changed, it has left shifted my outcome curve so that patients come back and reach maximum medical improvement, not at six months, which is what the literature tells us, but somewhere around the six week uh, point. And it, it's, it's many of my patients come back and say it's the, you know, it's such an easy reaction, I can't believe it. That's troubling because now what do you do with the 70 year old with an intact cuff? And now you have to have that discussion about, wow, I could, I may be doing a reverse in someone who's got an easily repairable rotator cuff or a non-torn rotator cuff, and now that's it. So I, I know that's out there in left field a little bit, but that's been what I've done with my practice. You know, JT, this is Matt. You know, I I, I actually agree with you, maybe for the second time. Um, the, <laughs> oh, yeah, the, yeah, uh, can we get that in writing somewhere, no, everybody? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> crazy, but um, honestly, I, I do a sling for my reverses. The same thing. Again, this was all looking at our results, looking at our evidence, looking at a couple of our publications where we did a lot of sling time, we did a lot of rehab time for the reverse specifically. And really what I've done now is I say, okay, what's the rehab like? Uh, whatever you want. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. You can do anything. I do a sling for about a week or two at uh, most. Uh, most of my patients are fully out of the sling by one to two weeks, if not sooner. And they can go back and do whatever they want. I don't really give them huge limitations. A lot of people ask about that. What about limitations in reverse? I, let, I honestly let them go back and do whatever they want. They've almost self-selected into certain types of activities, but if they are a higher risk person or a younger person that did meet indications for reverse, I'm a little bit careful in terms of heavy lifting or going back and lifting hay bales that are 50 to 75 pounds for a living or Certainly, some a lot of overhead activities or ceiling or HVAC electrical work that may be a little bit more of a challenge, but you may not limit them. You might want to limit maybe a little bit of their lifting, but at the end of the day, uh, the the rehab on this is actually very easy. Move it, strengthen it, scapular engagement right away. Do whatever you want. Guys, JT, Matt, are you at all seeing any scapular stress fractures with this very early range of motion and unrestricted action, or are you not noticing that, or are you just saying, look, I lateralize so much, I don't get that? Yes, yeah, so I can speak to that. I, I have had, uh, I've had three, I think, uh, acromial stress fractures, and uh, the first one I had, it certainly had my full attention. We're watching them and everything, but my overall percentage is no higher uh, from the time that I switched uh, this methods. And then I guess the question I would ask is, is why would early motion cause a stress reaction or a stress fracture 
any more or more commonly than uh, than slower or delayed motion. There's nothing left to heal, right? Yeah, so there's I'm no reason that the motion will be different. Fair question. I wonder if the yep. deltoid accommodates just a little bit better with some time, you know, because I do still get a little stretch on that deltoid. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I, I guess I feel like it, what I put in it at day one is basically what's in, and um, maybe you get some accommodation over time or some you know sort of gradual response to the the new implant by going a little bit slower. I suppose that's an argument to be made. And and the truth is is I don't have the answer on that, uh, Paul, to be able to say oh for sure it doesn't blah blah blah. We haven't been doing it long <clears throat> enough, but but it is and it, and it's a good fair question. Yeah, Paul, good good question. You know, I actually agree with JT for the third time this evening. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think. Are you guys, are you guys holding the, hands? What's going on over here? What's the difference in the stress fracture from, you know, day one to, you know, day 100? I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I do I appreciate some of the accommodation. I don't know. I truly don't know what that means in terms of the z lines and the muscle and everything else that may be going on in the lengthening process and distalization on some I mean, level but take yeah, mercy though matt the way you treat that stress fracture is you shut him down in a slit and that gets him better correct yeah but it's it's a very infrequent event i actually think there's more to the stress fracture they're obviously not benign they hurt and causes a problem um i've had i've had a couple i don't think it's like jt said i don't think it's any different from you know, earlier rehab as I get more aggressive with it versus not. I, I actually think there's more, much more to it, obviously, all the things we think about with our bone density and prior acromioplasties and, you know, thinness of the, the chromium, et cetera. But, you know, I think there's a lot of other factors there. You could, you could certainly be one of them. You bring up a good point. I might make the argument, Paul, that the opposite is true, that because you stick them in a sling for six weeks, they get increased osteoporosis and disuse atrophy of not only their musculature, but of their bone. So now you've got an astronaut bones washout from the six weeks in the sling, and it may make them more likely to have uh, acromial stress problems or bone problems. Look, that's totally fair. I, I'm I'm getting my reverses playing golf with me the next day, so I'm I'm on board with you guys. I like that. Yes, that's sir. A, that's a learning point. I think the main question here is whether or not during that period of time after the reverse is placed, when the delta is under more stress, is if that increased stress is then on the acromion and the acromion then strengthens or builds more mass in, in response. And I've often wondered if the reason why we see some more acromial stress fractures in some people than others is because some people have more ability to adapt to that response than others. It, as I think you, you said, Matt, I think this is probably a lot more complicated and it probably has a lot to do with the, where you place the implants and a lot about the host. Certainly we, we found in a, in a study recently that Patients with rheumatoid arthritis had like 10 times the acromial stress fracture risk of the general population. That's, that's totally independent of where you put the implants, and that's totally a bone, a bone density issue. So I, I, I think what you're saying, JT, is super interesting. Here's my question for you, though. Are you using an implant that's an ingrowth implant, and do you worry at all about putting too much stress through those, those surfaces that are supposedly ingrowing early on that may lead to failure of ingrowth or loosening or do you think because the implants under so much compression at baseline that's not really an issue yeah it's a good point i think that uh we we are using ingrowth implants uh for me every one of those is i, I don't use a post unless i'm doing a bio rsa or something like that so mine is a is that big six five to seven oh screw that's bicortical across there 
And um, I have yet to see one of those that has good fixation at the time of surgery loosen. But that was a concern for me early on. Uh, and time will tell in terms of if, you know, if my five-year loosening data or seven-year loosening data is increased, then I'll have made a, a wrong decision on that. In truth, my, my patients are, um, I don't want to oversell this and, and have everybody think that, you know, because I tell them they're free to do whatever they want the next day, that they are out playing golf or that they are out, you know, hang gliding. The vast majority of these folks are self-limiting anyway, but it is unbelievably freeing for them from their family standpoint, from their self-care standpoint, from that initial process where they just can't even bear the idea of a post-operative rehab after a shoulder arthroplasty, who, who then come in and say, oh my gosh, and rarely do I have people come back like the five-day golfer that I have. But most of the time they come back and they say, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I felt good at it. I, I use the sling sometimes. And I'm back to already getting my hair done and I'm back to taking care of myself from that standpoint. And this has been a breeze. So I don't, we don't, we haven't randomized anybody to like the massive powerlifting, well, weightlifting arm of that study, which we won't do. But, but it is a, it is a good question. If you overstress that, right, and you get enough micro motion that will affect the ingrowth into that stem. But I, I have not seen it to be an issue yet. I doubt it will be. Let me ask you this, Matt. You mentioned that you worry about the person who's trying to get back to heavy-duty activity. And we've all seen that, you know, the person who's a construction worker who's 58 who says, Doc, i got to work for a couple more years, who has an irreparable cuff tear where you're thinking about the reverse and you're worried. In my area, I see people, you know, who occasionally say, Doc, well, i got to shop wood to heat my home in the winter. Is that a problem? Tell us, why are you worried about that? Have you seen someone who's had an issue? I hear people say it on the podium all the time, and I'm I'm not sure why I'm worried about the person who's a heavier duty lifting person with a reverse than I am with anything else. Yeah, I, I think people, you know, good, you know, good concept on, on this, you know, and we don't, we don't really have all the information in terms of exactly what people are going back to, what force they're using, what forces across the implant. And frankly, you know, we, we can be a factor in that based on what size glenosphere you are using, how many screw fixation, whether you're using a post versus all screw construct distalization. I mean, there's so many factors involved with this. That's why it's a nice research project. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, chopping wood, you, you, for me, you can go back and do that. Uh, hunting, fishing, hiking, uh, swimming, biking, throwing, uh, playing catch, football. I, I, I don't limit patients really from uh, anything uh, that they want to do. But I'd say, listen, if you're going to if you're a heavy laborer and your job is to, you know, move 350 hay bales that are 75 pounds each every day, that may not be the best thing for your reverse just from an implant longevity standpoint, but they still do it. It's amazing um, if you have the right patient. But a lot of it, just like JT said, a lot of them are self-limited. They know what they can do and can't do. And for the most part, based on the indications, they're just really happy to get a ton of their life back. It may not be all of it. And I, I think that's a big part of the satisfaction scores that we see with the reverse that are, are really high. They're very, they're excellent. Let me ask you guys along these lines, um, and JT alluded to this earlier, when you have that kind of controversial patient, so that 60, 65, 70 year old with an intact cuff with arthritis where 10 years ago or so, you know, the answer would be an anatomic. But now with knowing that we can be a much more aggressive with our rehab, less sling time, essentially no physical therapy, which is so attractive to patients. And in particular in this area or this era of COVID where we might want to limit in-person visits regardless of what we're doing and who knows how long that might last. 
Are you guys with indications stretching the limits a little bit more and moving toward reverse because patients seem so much happier earlier on? Or has that not played a role? So, Paul, let's start with you. Are you more apt to recommend a reverse for one of those controversial patients because of the potential for an easier rehab? No, not likely. In my in my hands, at least, I think a well-done primary arthroplasty uh, is going to have a, a subtly but meaningful better outcome. I know the outcome scores, as you look at all players across the board, are going to be uh, similar. But I think that, you know, with our, our ability to augment or deal with weird version, uh, I'm I'm going to probably press towards a primary. Now, look, if you're 96 years old or 87 years old, then I think you can go into the reverse mania camp and, and have dealer's choice. But, uh, but I'm still I'm still going to push for a, a primary arthroplasty. JT, what about you for that, you know, 65, 70-year-old arthritic intact cuff who just wants to golf next month? Yeah, so uh, you've got me here. I, I think that the role of reverse is going to continue to increase. Uh, I will say that the, that if you take a look at the large-scale data studies that have been done, there is a, a, a difference between the two of about eight points if you look at it. But you got to remember that the, most of those studies are skewed because the reverses are done in patients with cuff tear arthropathy to begin with. They're done in patients that, that have end-stage revision, et cetera. So comparing apples to apples hasn't really been done well in the literature. We have a randomized clinical trial that's just about to start up doing exactly what you're saying. Where, because there's enough surgeons out there who have in, in our study group that said, listen, this is, this is a question worth asking. So that's the first thing. But I do think Paul brings up a good point. The, the reverse shoulder is in fact limited by the mechanics in terms of motion, right? So there, there, there's a limit to the amount of overhead elevation that you can get based upon the size of your glenosphere and some of those other um, implant specific uh, issues that you have. And so if you have that person who has to get maximal range of motion overhead or that person, especially internal rotation, the ball and the, the reverse ball, the glenosphere runs out of room. And so that patient, I do think there's still a, a great value to a uh, anatomic uh, total shoulder arthroplasty. I still think it is an excellent operation, as good, if not slightly better than the reverse, all other things being equal. And Matt, how about you? You have, say, this patient coming in this winter. They want to get their surgery done before the end of the year because of their deductible, but they also want to be on the slopes come, you know, ski season in mid-January, mid-February. Um, they're 65, athletic, no rotator cuff problems, no history of shoulder pain until the last couple of years when their shoulders started hurting, and, and we can attribute it to the arthritis. What are you doing for that patient? Yeah, you know, Rachel, there's, there's nothing like a, a well-done anatomic shoulder arthroplasty. Patients do extremely well, just as Paul pointed out. They have uh, excellent function, excellent outcomes, especially in the setting of an intact rotator cuff. The, the reality is I, I sort of look at this as a, you know, soft tissue procedure for decision-making as well as a, you know, bony procedure. And our three-dimensional planning has helped that. It's helped with outcomes. And we do know that there are going to be limitations to how the total shoulder arthroplasty, the anatomic, is going to uh, react. And we start looking at uh, rotator cuff quality, rotator cuff uh, findings, early atrophy, all the stuff we're worried about, partial tears, and you tie into that some significant superior inclination or some significant retroversion, you're your conversation needs to shift to what is the longevity of this anatomic implant going to be? 
And so that's what we generally talk about is what we think the longevity is going to be based on best evidence. And those are the most important factors right now. And it's not just, it's not just the rotator cuff, it's not just the soft tissue, but it's also the, the bony alignment and not to get too technical with all of this, but we want them to have the best possible outcome at the end of the day. And, you know, and I know he, this patient, he or she wants to ski at four to six weeks from the scenario he gave me, but you know, you'd probably do that with a reverse, probably not going to let you do that with an anatomic. Uh, but we still want to try to pick the best procedure and implant for the patient. Totally. Definitely some food for thought and we'll for sure look forward to JT's study um, in terms of that randomized trial. Let's talk about one more issue that affects us, I think, all over the country, but especially, you know, here in, in the mountains with uh, mountain biking season and ski season in the winter, and that's clavicle fractures. So clavicle fractures are controversial in and of themselves in terms of should we fix them, should we not, and we can debate all day on the indications, but let's assume we're going to fix them. When are we letting patients go back? What is the absolute earliest you're going to let an athlete go back to sport? And let's talk contact sports like football. So JT, let's start with you, football or hockey. When are you going to let an athlete go back after you get an excellent anatomic fixation, you know, standard lag screw and uh, either anterior superior plating, and maybe your plating technique um, has a, you know, weighs into this, whether you're using dual plating or single plate, tell us your protocol here. Yeah, it's a great question because the literature and the anecdotal experience is oftentimes different. You know, there's studies in the literature that averaged, you ready, return to play after clavicle fractures at four and a half days, days, right? So there are those that are super aggressive with that. If you take a look at Jimmy Andrews' work that came out of the NFL combine, Matt may have been a part of that study about return to play after clavicle fractures in them. It was somewhere around that six-week point. Um, and so we know that if you fix uh, from some of McKee's work and everything, that if you fix uh, clavicle fractures, you reach radiographic union, probably not until 12 weeks, but most of us don't hold them out that long. I use a lot of intermedullary screws. So if I've got a, a young athlete who has a, uh, a, a fairly stable, rotationally stable clavicle fracture, I actually fix that with a, uh, a large 6.5 screw or a 5.5 screw. And in those patients, really the only limiting factor I have for them is their wound to heal. So in a big open plating, when I do that, I've got to get that wound to heal so they don't break it down. They feel so good that I've had patients come back and, and mess with their wound because they were power cleaning at four days, saying, Doc, it's only a 135, just warm-up sets, and they're resting it on there because they really do feel better um, because that thing isn't moving around and the spasm goes away. So you got to protect the wound, which takes every bit of two weeks and sometimes up to three, but once the wound is healed... I, I get them moving and strengthening right away. By the time I get to that six point, they're ready. Not just return to play, but play. And Paul, how about you? What's your protocol there? So I uh, I'm going to use dual plates. I'm going to use I'm going to use a long plate superiorly, so I can prevent a, a periprosthetic or if he gets hit again earlier. And uh, with dual plates, I think about six weeks uh, is is a, is a reasonable target. And Matt, how about you with, you know, when you were back with the Patriots or even now with some of the U.S., you know, ski and snowboard team, they're obviously wanting to get back on the slope ASAP. What, what's your protocol for these guys? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting here, the uh, level and number of clavicle fractures that you get off the mountain all year round. It's, uh, it's actually quite staggering and just the sheer number. And so with that, we've learned, we've learned quite a bit. And you also learn from the professional side and that, you know, NFL study that was right around 5.5 to six weeks until we let people come back. Some famous quarterbacks can come back around seven weeks, have a little soreness, 
but they do they do okay. Um, I'm very aggressive about getting these folks back. <clears throat> if you haven't already surmised with some of the other stuff we've discussed, and just with very good plating, generally superior, sometimes augmenting with anterior, uh, even tape type suture, other things, depending on how comminuted the fracture is. Very confident that you know, just like we were talking about with wound healing, a couple weeks back to back to most activities sling for two to three weeks and mostly just to let the wound calm down the soft tissue envelope calm down and let that very important uh, delta trapezial fascia heal and other areas heal that i also think is important as part of that envelope okay let's move on to um the end of the clavicle and talk about ac joint reconstruction so much has changed with techniques and implants uh, with this particular procedure, do you do you think that these we're getting quicker healing, Paul? Are, are, are when are you letting these players go back to play, and has this changed for you as our techniques have changed? It's funny. I never realized I was going to be a slowpoke in a group uh, and, and slow things down. But to me, an AC injury. Well, first of all, we've we've learned a lot, and my reconstruction. I'm really just reconstructing the CC ligaments. I think that it's important for the rotational stability to reconstruct AC ligaments at the same time. And, uh, and I don't think everyone needs a recon, right? I mean, a lot of athletes can get back and get through a season, hockey players in particular. They, they can get away with even type fives, uh, and, and I'm comfortable with that. But this is slower. This rehab slower. Otherwise, they stretch out pretty quickly. Uh, and we can look at the NFL athletes who have had that experience. So for me, once again, you know, four months is the earliest. What about you, JT? Are you, um, are you quicker or slower than that? I'm slower. Uh, Rich Hawkins, Whoa. who has taught many of us on this, but has uh, but has uh, he used to say about this operation, this is an operation waiting to fail. And that's probably because he did so many uh, different techniques. As you guys all know, there's over 200 surgical techniques described in literature for this injury. And that's because if we'd found one that worked, we would have stopped inventing new ones, right? So everything from the Weaver done to the double trouble to the double bundle to all the other stuff. And so because our results haven't been good, we keep modifying the technique. And if I dare say, we're continuing now because we can't quite figure out the CC ligament reconstruction. Now we say, well, no, it's because you only had one bundle on that. No, no, now it's because you didn't go after the AC joint. And so we continue to chase our tail. In my opinion, we still do not have this operation figured out, even with you know, doing everything that I do, which includes CC and AC reconstruction, blah, blah, blah. Um, my results are better now that I'm not looking after Army Rangers, but but they um, <laughs> one that I go very slow on, and I have a great deal of respect for this one. So for me, uh, they are they are um, not only immobilized for six weeks, but I actually immobilize them with a pillow that is under the arm, so it's not like an abduction pillow. The abduction pillow goes on, but the arm rests on that, so that I can hopefully mitigate the weight of the arm and gravity, which I think is the that's interesting. So what about you, Matt? Are you are you also using a pillow under the arm? Um, and when do you let these people get back into activity? Yeah, I don't I don't necessarily use one right under the arm, but I do a higher uh, pillow abduction swing or sometimes even an orthosis. You know, I'm, this, this is a tough surgery. It's a tricky surgery to get right. I, my technique has been relatively stable except for a few small iterations. Over the last at least decade, um, you know the outcomes are, you know, I think, very good, but not perfect. So, 
I, I actually go a bit slower with these. Um, and I do a, a graph, usually one to two allographs or one graph split in half, depending on how you use it, depending what reconstruction technique. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to do this. But basically CC plus AC plus some level of a device. And so with that, I, I feel reasonably confident, but I still get these folks in sling for five weeks, a week of transition out to six weeks, and then full activity depending on how they're looking, how things are, and muscle strength and scapula, everything else, because this is a big scapular problem we have to keep in mind, especially people with chronic AC joint issues. Their scapula has been dysfunctional for a long time among many of our other shoulder injuries, but especially for this one with what people want to get back to. So I'm very diligent about that, and I use the time to really get after their scapula. And so this is a four to six month type of return for me. Matt's point about about the scapula is a really critical one, and I'm sure we don't have time to go into it. But one thing that I've learned about the scapula, you're in this conundrum about trying to strengthen the scapula and protecting your repair. So I'll let these folks strengthen their scapular muscles, but only supine with gravity taken out of them. Um, awesome. Well, guys, this is about all the time we have. Um, I want to thank you all so much for coming on the podcast. This has been awesome and it provides tons of food for thought for um, when we can return to play. We touched on a huge variety of topics. So just to, you guys were, it was a tour de force. It was awesome. I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure our listeners will find this conversation valuable as they approach these kinds of cases. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks very much, man, guys. Really enjoyed being with you. Yeah, yeah Pete, Rachel, great job. Thank you. Yeah, very stimulating. Thanks a lot. Thank you all. That's about all the time we have for this podcast. I will say I am impressed with the lack of badgering between all of our guests. I was expecting a little bit more. <laughs> um, so thank you guys for keeping it, you know, a little bit PG-13. Um, and our listeners you know, um, will be very supportive and appreciative of that. We want to thank our guests so much for their time. Again, for our listeners, these are the superstars in sports medicine, shoulder surgery, and, and these pearls um, come from years and decades of experience. And I know Pete and I are both grateful to have them, and we hope all of our listeners are as well. And so for all those shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. For Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.